This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it's quite the anniversary. 75 years ago, a book came out that really revolutionized American society. It was called Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, and it was written by Dr. Alfred Kinsey. I mean, you've probably heard of it, right? It ushered in a new era of being able to talk more openly about sexual behavior. But here's the thing. His book was about male sexuality, the first one anyway, and it was a bestseller, celebrated his book on female sexuality, well, that was another story entirely. Now, Johnny Thompson is a philosopher and writer for Big Think who has written about this moment in history and joins us now to talk about it. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Simi. I think we, we forget sometimes, don't we, Johnny, about how significant some of these milestones are. Like the publication of this book must have been quite scandalous. Oh, absolutely. Well, if you think what it was like back in 1940s America, where well, this was a time when people wouldn't talk about sex at all, let alone kind of study it at, at university. And the only place you could actually study it in, in the academic arena. So it would have been kind of literal birds and bees. It's the only time you talked about sex, really. So, so what happened was, was the students at Indiana University at the time, they uh, petitioned their board to have a uh, marriage and family course. Uh, which was essentially what we call sex education today. And because, you know, there, there, there was no one trained in sex education back then, they asked uh, the next best thing, which was a zoologist called uh, Alfred Kinsey, whose uh, his expertise actually was in was in wasps. So uh, wasn't quite wasn't quite birds and the bees. But yeah, right. it was wasps. So, yeah, I mean, at the time they had this criteria where you had to be uh, either engaged or married. Um, but I think Kinsey himself was fairly kind of uh, relaxed in terms of like, how much they checked up on that. So there were quite a few people there who were, should we say, dubiously contracted to be engaged, I'd say. So, uh, and it was a huge success. The, you know, the, these lecture halls were full of people and um, it was so successful actually that Kinsey went on to do his his studies and his and his research. Um, not least because there are lots of questions he was getting, you know, are people coming up after the lecture hall and in lecture hall after the lectures and saying to him, look, you know, how, how common is this or is this thing that I'm feeling or these or these sexual orientation I have, is, is it normal or is it abnormal? And, and Kinsey, didn't know the answer because you know we didn't know i mean we kind of take it for granted today that we can kind of just go on google and find out what statistics there are or percentage there are for x y and z but back then people didn't know what percentage of the population were gay or people who had um, homosexual thoughts or how many people did you know visit prostitutes or you know all, all these kind of things which were in the original kinsey report it right was, uh, yeah it was really groundbreaking but what happened then johnny when he decided that he was also going to write about female sexuality well, that's the thing. So he, re he released the male one in 1948, and it was just this hot success. You know, they were having two publishing houses um, having to print uh, 24 hours, basically, a day to kind of like to, to meet up with demand. But then 
1953, when he released a female version, there was you know, a huge scandal about it. Because, you know, I, I think the findings in his first study and the first research were, were pretty shocking and pretty you know, scandalous by the time. But they were pretty much accepted and they were discussed around the dinner table at cocktail parties and stuff. And, you know, Kinsey was praised as being this guy who kind of like, you know, broke the dam of kind of this taboo and stuff. And people were finally talking about things. So, you know, in his first report, he found, for example, that... Um, about 10% of uh, men had uh, were, were homosexual and had been so for at least three years. And he found also that 37% of men had engaged in at least one homosexual act to, to the point of orgasm. You know, these, these were quite big things. And, and he also found that there were, um, you know, roughly half of all married men had cheated on, on their wives and their spouses at the time. So, you know, th these were things which were very scandalizing. But then when he released the same thing about women in 1953, it was complete in Kettle of Fish. There were literal book burnings. Um, and, you know, all, all of the media, the print media kind of really said that, you know, Dr. Kinsey is kind of really uh, corrupting the youth and, and ruining the, the family standards of America. But, you know, all he was doing was documenting what he found in his, in, in his research, in his study. Because, uh, I mean, the thing about Kinsey was that he, he himself was very unjudgmental in his interviews and in his process. So he actually treated the entire thing as if he was a zoologist and he treated humans as if they were kind of animals. And so he, uh, I mean, one, one possibly controversial point about Kinsey was that he was so unjudgmental that when there were people who admitted to what were criminal acts, so, um, he didn't report them or didn't, or didn't tell uh, the police right. about them. So um, there's, there's a fairly controversial and fairly famous example of one patient who, who admitted to paedophilia. Um, there's a, a Mr. X who abused about 800 children and oh uh, Kinsey didn't, didn't report it. Um, today, uh, if, if, if Kinsey's study were, had federal money, then he would have had to report that uh, legally. But back then it was private. And of course, you know, Kinsey didn't want to tell people that he would report them if they admitted something which was taboo or illegal. So, I mean, but, so that, that's obviously the controversy and, and the scandal. But on the other hand, though, he, he was so open and, and, and non-judgmental that it allowed people to talk about these lies which had been previously hidden from uh, public view. So, for example, he, he would often ask um, un, uh, kind of open questions. So, for example, he wouldn't say... Um, do you masturbate or have you uh, cheated on your wife? He would say, when was the first time you have masturbated? Or when was the first time you right. kind of uh, cheated on your wife? And that kind of, uh, that normalizes the whole situation. And so people were much more willing to open up and admit to things that possibly they wouldn't have done if he, he came at it with a, you know, have you ever kind of right. conversation have, topic. But have we ever kind of looked back on his research and said, you know, uh, pro it's problematic now because he didn't do X, Y, Z? Uh, well, yeah. So as, as I mentioned, the, uh, with, the, with right. the Mr. X and, and the P, that, that was a scandal. But also there are certain problems with his data sets at the time. Um, it's a problem which is very hard to limit in, in certain things where, where you have to self-diagnose and, and self-refer, like in uh, with sexual and stuff like that. Um, the first problem is what's called volunteer bias, is that the people who uh, volunteer for the study have to themselves be open enough to talk about their sexual habits in a time when people didn't talk about their sexual habits. Um, so that will probably kind of manipulate the data to an extent towards those people who may, may be having more sex or different kinds of sex than, than the average population. Um, the other thing was that he uh, he wanted to try to uh, access as, as many points in, the, in society as possible. And one of those things was that he, he went into prisons and, and interviewed uh, uh, prisoners about their kind of sexual behaviours. And uh, so 18% of, of the men in his data were from prison, whereas in reality, it's about 2 or 3% of men are incarcerated at any point in America. So um, they, they were massively overrepresented in his data. But even so, I have to say, in, in, in the 80s about data, the 
the Kinsey Institute did actually uh, clean the data and, and took out the prison data. Um, and the findings are not dissimilar to what Kinsey himself found in the 40s, which of course is that is, is the gay statistic, which is and um, which is much higher than people thought and and think at the time. So it, he came out with this 10 percent. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say this is so fast. It's hard to believe it's been 75 years. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you think how much has changed in that time as well. Uh, also, one other thing that's changed in his time is, is how we view sexual orientation. Because uh, one other criticism that has come in for Kinsey and his research was that he uh, defined sexuality almost uh, entirely by sexual events or sexual behaviours. Whereas today we are uh, much more aligned to the idea that it might be about preferences and about identity as well. So, right. so for example, where, if someone had, had admitted to a homosexual act, that would have counted as, as a point on what, what has now become known as the Kinsey scale. Um, and that would have kind of aligned him as being kind of either, you know, fully heterosexual, right. or fully homosexual, or mostly homosexual, and, and, except like that, like that really. But yeah, so um, yeah, we, are, we, are, we do approach sexuality very differently today. But um, as I say, it, it was, you know, revolutionary at the time um, and, and scandalous yeah, yeah i know that's were, what i find so, i know so fascinating about it how scandalous it would have been 75 years ago um, johnny thanks for your time yeah thanks for having me on wyndham hotels and resorts makes travel possible for all whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee a roomier rest for the on a whim road trippers or a place to make summer memories with the whole family no matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This is Mornings with Simi. Hi, you are wrong, Simi. You are wrong, and I'm. Th- this brings me joy because, uh, as you know, I, despite my uh, Pollyanna and positive and all that type of stuff that we've already established, but I also really like to be right. And so, when I get into a discussion or sort of debate with somebody, you know, everybody goes on the Google and gets their phones out and stuff. And I seek out an expert to tr- the, like as part of what we do. That's like one of the things I get to do here to find out about this. And so, uh, with the to swing back into fall and the days are, you know, getting shorter and all of that, I feel tired. And so my wife is like, oh, you need to drink more water. That's what the problem is. And I hate that because look, I drink enough water. I know no one keeps track of it. I don't know how many glasses I have, but it's enough. Okay. So uh, I I started digging in on this and I found some interesting research. uh, And I spoke with Stephen Chung. He's a professor of kinesiology at Brock University. And uh, he has, yeah, has some interesting thoughts. So I basically, I asked him straight up, like, how much water do we actually need to be drinking every day? It's a highly variable thing in terms of how much you actually need to drink. And so that's why we're not necessarily going on a fixed guideline like you must drink eight glasses of water because there's a lot of factors involved. There is your age. There is the time of year, whether you're in the heat of summer, whether you're exercising, whether you eat a lot of 
fruits and vegetables that already have a lot of water in them. So the amount of fluid that you need to drink changes over the course of all those different variables and also your actual kind of needs change. So it's really hard to just pin it down to say everybody needs eight glasses of water. We are able to gauge when we are thirsty and we are able to drink adequate amounts. When you're taking over the course of not just a day, but over a couple of days, et cetera. So that's why it's really hard to pin it down to a specific number. And that's why it's very individual. But overall, thirst for most of us is a very good guideline overall. Okay. So where did the eight glasses a day idea come from? Because I feel like for the last, you know, 30 years, that's been, that's kind of been drilled into us, or at least into me for sure. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And let's make it clear. There is a mandatory amount of fluid loss that every human has throughout the course of the day. And that's through our urine, through our feces. And that's really required. So even if you were just lying in bed in full bed rest, let's say in hospital and not moving for a whole day, you are still losing about 800 mils to a, a liter of water. So about between three glasses to four glasses of water. So that's really mandatory fluid loss that you have just as normal functioning. So that's probably a good starting baseline. I guess the real caution is just that, oh, you have to drink, you have to drink this much all the time. And so it's more of a kind of a moderating idea of you don't need to obsess about drinking eight glasses a day. And you you see now it's being commercialized, right, that there are these smart hydration water bottles or things like that. And you probably don't really need the, those and buy into them. You can really, again, get by with thirst. The other thing we want to make sure when we're addressing this issue of hydration is we want to people to be drinking water. We're not talking about drinking sodas, which have a lot of water or water and sugar. We're not talking about drinking things like Gatorade or even fruit juices, coffee or tea, and really relying on those to be our hydration needs. You are not going to get seriously dehydrated over the course of the day because you'll just get thirsty and you'll drink. So it's more kind of that moderating guideline rather than saying we don't need to drink at all. That's certainly not the message that we're trying to impart. Okay. And so you would say that in most cases, like the idea that people are dehydrated, that is that actually quite rare sort of like, and one of those things that's been um, socialized, like, Oh, I feel dehydrated. I have a headache. It's cause I'm dehydrated. And maybe what does actual dehydration look like or feel like? Sure. If you're actually dehydrated, you are have your, your, um, you will possibly have a headache because there's less blood possibly going to your head. And also you are going to have your heart work a lot harder to pump blood around your body because there will be less blood overall in your body. So you will kind of notice those symptoms. You obviously notice things like a dry mouth will increase. And the, um, you know, the typical guidelines, the hydration guidelines says if you are exercising, for example, you should try to keep drinking during exercise and you should try to avoid losing about 2% of your body weight. Okay. Final question. 
How about a hangover? Is that uh, dehydration? And do does all of the same rules apply? Um, and and can you speak at all to that? Because I think we associate sure. a lot of a lot of those type of things together. And I think it's just kind of like a fun, maybe not fun, but like yeah. uh, an interesting real life application for a lot of people. Yeah, sure. What's happening with a hangover besides the kind of alcohol? being in your system, alcohol is also a diuretic. It makes you urinate, makes you pee out more. So in addition to the alcohol effects, you are also very often very dehydrated the, the morning after. And like we said before, that can lead to a headache. And, um, you know, that's one of the classic effects of a hangover. It may lead to a lot of fatigue. And that's a situation where, yes, you may absolutely be dehydrated because you're urinating, peeing out a lot. So, yeah, one of the cures for hangovers, make sure the next morning or even like the night before after you you uh, come back home, make sure you drink and drink a lot kind of beforehand. And that'll probably uh, help quite a bit. That's Professor Stephen Chung. He's a professor of kinesiology at Brock University. Had to make sure to get the hangover question in there. This is Mornings with Simi. All right. If you were needing to take BC Ferries this weekend, warnings for you. Big flashing red lights ahead. Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun joins us now to talk about that. Good morning, Vaughn. Uh, good morning, Simi. And I'm so sorry to indulge uh, Victoria, Vancouver Island's obsession with the ferry service. But it seems that there's... <laughs> Bad news follows bad news. So, What did they do? What did they say? Well, here's the latest. So the ferries, uh, you know, they've been doing a lot better job of briefing the news media on what the heck's going on with the service. So there's a briefing, an online one, um, login, uh, set for today, media briefing on looking ahead. Uh, we've actually got two holiday weekends coming up. So looking ahead to ferry services over there. And we're going to get an update on the ship that's been out of service for drive motor servicing for a few weeks, uh, Coastal Renaissance. Not saying much else about what it is, but the Ferry Workers Union has come out and said, well, there's a problem with another ship. And everyone goes, oh, no. Not <laughs> so, now, really? Uh, the Ferry Corp is saying, wait for the briefing. Uh, they're not confirming anything, but the union usually knows what's going on in there. And the head of the union, Eric McNeely, says, okay, the spirit of Vancouver Island. Now, those are the reliable ships in the fleet, the spirits. They're 30 years old. They also carry more passengers and vehicles than anything else in the fleet. What, more than 2,000 passengers, 350 vehicles. And according to the union, the spirit of Vancouver Island is going to have to be taken out of service in October. Didn't They don't know the date, but sometime in October, so soon, because of problems with the hull. So, you know, uh, what, what can you do? You, you say, okay, here we go again. In any event, uh, I expect more bad news, uh, unless the union's wrong, and I don't think they are on this one, uh, from the briefing later today. Okay, and, and people are not taking this very well, are they, oh. if we take a look at these public consultations? Yeah, so this is another disturbing story. So the, the, the story I just told you about, that's in the Victoria Times Colonist Today reported, and there's a second story in the Times Colonist Today, and it says that, it, as you just referenced, Simi, that the mood has turned ugly 
at the public consultations on the ferries. So there's an advisory committee of the ferries. They meet regularly. They hear feedback from ferry uh, service uh, passengers, uh, communities that are ferry dependent. And according to the story, last Wednesday, uh, the 20th of September, so last Wednesday, not Wednesday that just passed, um, somebody uttered a threat at the meeting, a threat, a pretty serious one, uh, that if the ferries didn't deal with some of these service issues, uh, quote, uh, uh, she was going to take a gun to everyone. Uh, ferries does have security. They consulted their security service. The security service said, um, that's pretty serious oh. stuff. So, you know, Vaughn, corp- I don't yeah, understand I mean, in this, like, this day and age, why, know, how is someone so dumb people? to do that? I don't yeah, get that. I don't know what's wrong with people, but what's happened is the ferry corporation has, in my view, uh, played it safe. They have suspended the schedule for public consultations. They're moving them online until their own security service can give them good advice on how to proceed. So, yeah, there's a lot of anger out there and there have been a lot of service interruptions and cancellations, but, you know, whatever one thinks of the performance of the Ferry Corporation, uh, it strikes me that they're doing their best, the staff are doing their best, and the union says that, you know, ferry workers in the front lines the people at the ticket booths, the people that deal firsthand up front with passengers are reporting more frustration, more anger, and more threats as well. So it's, That's a you know, sad state I think we're all kind of hoping, yeah, I think we're all kind of hoping, Simi, for a turn the corner on BC Ferries. And maybe this is just a glitch. I hope it is, but uh, still pretty disturbing news. I will say that, like, one, I just, sad state of affairs that this, the kind of world that we live in, that somebody thinks that threatening BC Ferries is going to make them suddenly fix things. Uh, but on another note, I was actually on BC Ferries last week going back and forth to the island, Vaughn. And you know what really struck me was how many young people are now working at BC Ferries. Uh, that's very encouraging to hear because uh, I mentioned to you before in my ancient years when I went to high school in Nanaimo, the ferries were seen as a great job. The pay was good and the benefits were really good. And, you know, it was uh, cleaner and less stressful, shall we say, than working in a pulp mill, which was the other Nanaimo option. So I am encouraged. I, uh, the ferry work, the ferry corporation has been trying to get the word out to people that these are good, reliable, long-term jobs. They're trying to deal with one of the things that was holding people up from going to work for ferries, which was you started off as a temporary or a fill-in. Exactly. So it wasn't a full-time job and you couldn't pay your bills. So that's very encouraging to hear that. If ferry corporation is going to turn the corner on its problems, it's not just a matter of new vessels and more reliable vessels. It's also a matter of dealing with the staff problem, which has led to almost as many cancellations as mechanical difficulties. Got a fiscal update yesterday, but Vaughn, not a very good one. No, we get these several times a year. They're sort of updates on the budget that we got in February that was put in the House in February. Um, For most of the NDP's time in office since 2017, the news in these briefings has been positive and good. Usually what you hear is that 
the you know government kind of sketched a bit of a worst case scenario with the budget and projected debt and deficits, and they're outperforming the numbers. So most of the time, and we'll set aside the bad year of the pandemic when everything went sideways, most of the time the NDP has been able to say, hey, we're ahead of our targets. Yesterday, no, that wasn't the case. Uh, the deficit, which was pegged at about $4 billion in the February budget, is approaching $7 billion, according to Katrina Conroy, the finance ministry yesterday. So the numbers are headed in the wrong direction. She blamed mainly two things, a wretchedly bad wildfire season, which we all know about. It's already, it's going to cost about a billion dollars for the government resources to manage the wildfires to the degree they have. Also, natural gas prices have crashed, and natural gas is still a major source of provincial government revenue, uh, so a billion-dollar hit there as well. So it's it's not great news. Uh, the numbers are headed in the wrong direction. Conroy, you know, tried to put the best face on it and say the provincial economy is still strong, the government thinks it can manage this, might even be able to cover most of the deficit out of contingencies. So she tried to put the best face she could on it. But um, if you look at that, Simi, the projections for slumping economic growth next year, uh, rumblings in the world economy, uh, I don't think the news is going to get an awful lot better between now and the next budget next next year. Right. And next year is an election year, yeah. Vaughn. So what is their plan or do they give an indication of a plan for this? Well, she was asked about that. Uh, the New Democrats are budgeting for $14 billion in deficits over three years. Uh, no indication. She says this is not the right time to be cutting spending. Uh, and when did a New Democrat ever think it was the right time? Uh, not a time to increase taxes. Okay, I think most of the public is with her on that one. But no, it's very much stay the course for the government. And, you know, Simi, you and I talked about the Opinion polling yesterday, uh, the New Democrats are well poised to, to sweep back into power if an election is called. Um, we can go back to the 1990s when the public used to worry about debt and deficits for governments, but uh, I think we've passed beyond that era. It just doesn't generate the kind of headlines it used to, used to generate, and consequently, the government isn't all that worried about it. Okay, so that's a bit of a risk, though, because if the polls start yeah. to say people are worried about it, then what are you going to do? Uh, yes, and if the polls start to say that, uh, I think you will hear uh, the government come back. But look, look what the Trudeau government's been able to get away with in its time in office. Same that's thing, true. right? Deficit after deficit, deficits when the economy's growing, deficits when the economy isn't growing. Uh, again, I, I think you've got to look that the public has changed its mind about the importance of managing government finances. And look, the New Democrats can rightly say that BC's numbers are better than most of the other governments in Canada. Interest payments are lower. Share of revenues going to debt uh, to, to deficits is lower. Share of uh, gross domestic product, all better numbers in most provinces. So you know, it's, it, you can fault them or criticize them or flag it, but um, they can still say correctly they have a better record than most of the governments in Canada. And that's also true that British Columbia has a strong economy. There, there was one number in there that I think is worth flagging, Simi. Okay. Uh, and that's because, you know, we're in the middle of the big latest installment of the housing plan uh, yesterday. Uh, 
day before yesterday, the housing minister uh, laid out those targets. Uh, he wants 60,000 units of housing from 10 municipalities. So the finance ministry always has a projection in its updates on housing starts. And yesterday, when you looked at the numbers for housing starts, the ministry is projecting a decline in housing starts over the next three years. They're saying it's because interest rates are high, a shortage of workers, slowdown in home construction, all that. And they give you the reasons. They don't just pull these numbers out of thin air. So the finance minister got asked about that. Uh, your, your own ministry's numbers tend to be at odds with the government's view that we're headed for a boom in housing construction. The ministry is projecting a 14% drop. Interesting response. She said, well, you know, the ministry has to be prudent. And this is prudence. And this is being cautious. But she hopes that her own ministry's numbers will be proven wrong. Uh, She says it's happened in the past that the BC economy has delivered more housing units than the ministry expected. And she's hoping that will happen again. So we'll see, you know, uh, one thing about it, we eventually get a budget update and then we get audited financial statements. So we'll know. But it's it's one of the first times I've heard a finance minister say she hopes her ministry is wrong with the numbers it's given. Well, it won't be wrong in Oak Bay, given their response to the housing (laughs) targets. Like, that was ridiculous. Yeah, I know, but it's Oak Bay, Simi. I mean, there's a (laughs) long-standing joke in the provincial capital region about Oak Bay, and the laugh line is... When you phone the Oak Bay Planning Department to talk about a housing permit, the first thing they say is, how did you get our phone number? <laughs> so You know yeah. what? That explains a lot, actually. <laughs> I mean, Oak Bay <laughs> so. is a... Is a yeah, and look, it's a small municipality. It doesn't have a lot of developable land. But even, even where a housing project somehow or other makes it through the sieve, we had one here uh, nine years in process trying to build you know, multi-residential on a on a busy street in Oak Bay and the council slammed it down. So unbelievable. You know, there's a political issue there though. I mean Oak Bay is represented in the legislature by a cabinet minister, Murray Rankin. So the government has to be careful, but they only asked Oak Bay for six hundred and sixty-four units of housing over five years and Oak Bay is squawking that that's yeah. still way too much. <laughs> With a 10-page response. It killed me. Uh, Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye. That's Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. If you or someone you love gets a cancer diagnosis, life changes. Life changes for them. It changes for you. I mean, it just does. There are so many things that someone who is dealing with that diagnosis has to worry about and deal with. What you should not have to worry about and deal with, though, is getting to treatment or wondering where it's even going to happen or how far away it's going to be. So I hope this announcement from the provincial government yesterday really works for people. They are providing $20 million in investment. Some of that will go to the Canadian Cancer Society. So let's find out what they are going to do with this and how this will help cancer patients. Dr. Sandra Kukul joins us now, Executive Vice President of Mission Information and Support services at the Canadian Cancer Society. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Simi. What kind of a difference will this money make? Oh, it's it's incredibly important. I mean, with these funds, we will really make meaningful change in British Columbia to improve equitable access to cancer care for people throughout the province. In what way? What will it do? 
Well, it, I mean, it's it's really, as you said, there are so many pressures and strains um, and things that somebody has to think about when they're diagnosed. And, you know, simply put, it means we'll be able to help thousands and thousands of more people in BC to access their care by alleviating their financial stresses and that logistical burden of arranging travel. And this is especially true for people who have to come longer distances who live in rural and remote parts of the province. Um, And instead of focusing on all of that you know, financial concern or the logistics of arranging their travel, they will be able to put their focus much more on where it should be, right. which is on their health and their well-being. Right. So you're creating something called the Cancer Travel and Accommodation Services Program. What is that? Yeah. How will it work? Yeah. So Canadian Cancer Society has three existing programs, which we'll be able to expand with these new funds. And then we're adding to it a fourth program. And so collectively, these will address um, the sort of broad strokes of somebody's um, travel costs. So one of the things that we're doing is expanding the access and the eligibility for our travel treatment fund. And that's a fund that can be used by people in the province to uh, put towards any gas costs, meal costs, um, travel-related costs in general that they might have to incur while traveling for treatment. Um, And we are also eliminating the cost for patients to stay at our four lodges um, around the province. And these are purpose-built lodges that are there for cancer patients located um, right next door to cancer treatment centers. So when people do have to travel, for example, for their radiation uh, treatments, and they may have to stay several weeks at a time for that, it becomes a place that they can now stay at no cost. Um, We'll also be expanding our volunteer driver program. So this is a program called Wheels of Hope that matches wonderful volunteers in our communities around BC with a patient to take them to and from their cancer treatment so that they can travel at no cost. Um, And we'll be expanding this program into more uh, communities that currently don't have access to it. And we'll start with some communities on Vancouver Island and in the Kootenays. And then uh, the fourth program, which is the new program that we're introducing, is a fund for cancer patients who need to relocate to Vancouver for their bone marrow transplant. And this um, relocation is often a duration of uh, four or five or even more months at a time. And they must live in close proximity to um, a hospital and they must come with a caregiver. And so you can imagine the impact of that on somebody's finances because Vancouver is certainly not an inexpensive city to live in for that time. Okay, well, that sounds remarkable. And I I think a lot of people probably, Dr. Kukul, don't even understand that there are people who have to deal with these kinds of logistics. I think we take for granted having treatment relatively close by, don't we? Absolutely. That is, it's so true. Um, until you are faced with a cancer diagnosis, and especially if, if you don't live in an urban center, uh, you, you don't realize that part of your cancer care is specialized care offered at, at centralized locations in the province. And while it's wonderful care, the burden of getting there is really significant for people. They are taken, uh, you know, from their home, from uh, the support network that they have in their community for weeks at a time and sometimes months at a time and need to need to live somewhere else. And that's, it does take a huge toll. How soon will some of these be up and running? 
So on October 3rd, um, the Travel Treatment Fund and the Fund for um, uh, Bone Marrow Transplant uh, Support, as well as the elimination of uh, fees at our lodges, all of that will be effective as of um, next week. The expansion of Wheels of Hope will take a little time because it involves uh, recruitment of, of volunteers. So if you are somebody who would love to help, um, please think about volunteering for our um, our Wheels of Hope program because uh, the more volunteers we have, the quicker we are able to bring them in, the, the faster we'll be able to, to bring the additional supports for this program. Well, let's get that word out there. Uh, thank you so much for your time this yeah. morning. You're welcome. Thank you. That's Dr. Sandra Krukel, who's the Executive Vice President of Mission Information and Support Services at the Canadian Cancer Society. So they'll be getting $10 million as part of this announcement from the provincial government to provide these expanded services. As well, Hope Air is going to get $10 million. And what Hope Air does is they provide free round-trip air travel for patients and travel escorts and up to uh, two weeks of free hotel accommodations, airport transportation, daily meal support for people who have to fly to get their cancer treatment from rural parts of the province coming to a more major cancer center. I think it's great. You don't want to have to worry about these things uh, when you have a cancer diagnosis. So any support that they can offer, any help, uh, let's hope they can get this up and running as soon as possible. This is Mornings with Simi. You know what a ghost sign is? I know it sounds like the paranormal or something, but actually it's a little glimpse into a city's or more particularly a building's past when they kind of resurface. There are signs usually painted directly onto the side of a building and they were much more common back in the day. And then they are kind of rediscovered decades later. And you know what? Vancouver has its share of these as our next guest knows all about. So please, John Mackey, reporter for the Vancouver Sun is joining us now to talk about this. Good morning, John. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here to talk about this. Now, how common are ghost signs in Vancouver? In old buildings, you know, um, probably all of them would have had some kind of ghost sign, uh, a painted sign on the side. So in Gastown or even in all the uh, Commercial Drive, 4th Avenue, you know, probably from the 1890s to the 1920s uh, when neon signs showed up, uh, everybody would paint a sign on the side of their building. Right, but we're not very good at preserving our history or even our old buildings here in Vancouver, are we? Yeah, well, no, absolutely. And, and the reason a lot of them are discovered is because they're tearing down a small building, right? So, so they're, you know, a lot of the commercial buildings are one story. So, so you get something like the place on uh, the pizza joint on uh, 1100 block of Victoria, the Shelley's Bakery sign, uh, um, painted sign just showed up when they were... Um, changing the siding, I think, and they decided to keep it, right? It's this beautiful, um, large uh, sign, you know, very colorful, black, red, white, you know. And, and you know, in the Woodward's building, again, a lot, a lot of them, like uh, the Woodward's building, who knew that uh, when they when they uh, fixed up the Woodward building, that there were all these old signs on the Woodward building saying what it used to uh, sell back in the day, you know, like wallpaper and stuff like that, right? Oil skins, you know, so, so they're actual discoveries, really. So are we better at appreciating them now, do you think? Oh, absolutely. People love them. But, that's, but the builders don't love them because then it's a pain for them to actually save them, right? So, so, so the best one that came up recently in the, in the recent years was uh, 
and it was really a, a very unusual one, was uh, in 1922, for a week, Harold Lloyd, a silent movie star like Charlie Chaplin, he um, a painted sign on the sign of a building at Granville and Robson showed up, and they were demolishing uh, the building on the corner of uh, of uh, Robson and Granville. And uh, it was just beautiful. And so you had throngs of people looking at it, right? It was a painting of Harold Lloyd hanging off a ledge. And uh, unfortunately, you know, they uh, it got knocked uh, knocked down. They, they saved the, they saved the bricks, but they didn't save the sign. You know, that's so typical of us, though, isn't it? Like we get excited, and there's is there no way to save it? Do we not have any rules around these things? No, the city of Vancouver has no rules. And what they do is, is as far as I know, they, uh, they they send somebody in to photograph it to document it. I mean, in, in that case, what you probably could have done was you probably you know, they, they they save Egyptian hieroglyphics, right? So you could save a, a painted sign on the side of a building. Uh, all you'd probably have to do is make some kind of uh, a form and then chainsaw the sign out and then gently take it away. I mean, there was a guy that actually did that, Arthur Irving, who passed away, who um, saved, uh, there used to be a train station in Gastown, where, or Chinatown, where the um, Marco Polo restaurant was for years. And uh, he actually, the workers that were taking it down, he paid them like ten bucks to uh, to um, you know to push over the 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 uh, sign for the Vancouver Yukon and Westminster Railway into uh, into a form, and uh, and then it, it's now at the uh, Squamish Railway Museum, I think. That so is it, so it cool. It can be done. Yeah, it can be done if the will is there. So wh- tell us about some of your other favorites that you've come across. Well, I mean, there's. You know, sadly, another one that just lost was uh, the Loop Saloon, which was uh, at the corner of uh, uh, the back lane between Carroll on Carroll Street between um, Hastings and Cordova. It was probably a 1898 sign. That was Vancouver's oldest one. And and the renovation of that building, they got rid of that. That that was incredible. It said, um, you know, Bass 20 cents. It was was just fantastic. But I mean, one of my favorites is Pierre Paris, which is, you know, across the the street from Woodward's, this giant sign that says uh, "Pure Paris Shoes," and uh, and it's a uh, dollar fifty and five bucks. And they <laughs> they they seem to be uh, from different eras. Those two signs, so so they updated it, right? And 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 the other thing about the Pure Paris sign is that there seems to be another sign that is faded that was painted over top of it at one point. Oh. Which I've never been able to figure out. Oh yeah, it, it, it's uh, they're they're very interesting, and and you know, and once you get into the ghost sign things, you can see them everywhere, right? There's a great ghost sign in, it's uh, some great ghost signs in Medicine Hat, for example, that I always visit whenever I drive across Canada. So, what do you think it tells us about the way our neighborhoods have changed? Like, can you tell? Oh, this used there used to be a lot of bakeries over here, or maybe this was a more industrial area. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they, they uh, back in the early city, um, you know, there weren't there was Woodward's and there was uh, David Spencer store, but everything else was small businesses, and so these it was all these different small businesses, and uh, and all over the place. And you know, you'd go to I mean, I live in Strathcona, and we still have corner stores here, but there used to be corner stores everywhere, right? And and uh, and and so you just you see these fantastic little signs uh, advertising these long dead businesses which you can then determine what where uh, how long they, uh, what what era they were from by looking it up in the Henderson's directories at the Vancouver Public Library has 
scan these directories in, which tell you um, where everybody lived back in the day, right? It's, so, so uh, yeah, it, it's it, they're they're fantastic. I mean, you know, there is one that showed up a couple of years ago for the Vancouver Daily World, a newspaper that went out of business in 1924, and uh, it was inside a building um, on Pender Street. And uh, what happened was uh, that they were. Uh, Somebody was taking out some of the false walls that they put up, and they uncovered this old sign, right? And so what had happened was the the building next door was used as the wall, interior wall, for the building on the corner. It was, I think they're called ah. party walls or something. And, and uh, yeah, so it was just, that was a wild one. You know, that was, uh, you know, but they, they, they pop up all over the place. So know? do we not but even have probably, like a place where we can go, like, do somebody photograph them? Does somebody at least take a picture of them? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh, I do stories on them in the Vancouver Sun, and so we have the Sun as photos. But I think I think with social media, um, there was one that showed up uh, near London, where London Drugs used to be on Hastings. And uh, there was a one that showed up a couple of, uh, last year, I think. And uh, so and it became a... a uh, social media phenomenon because uh, Patrick Gunn of Heritage Vancouver photographed it, put it up online, and soon it had like forty thousand hits on Twitter. Love it. So, so, so yeah, it, it, the city does send some out there. I mean, what I would do is if it's if it's on a wooden building, I would just take the um, the uh, the siding off and then and give it to the Vancouver Museum. Which, in fact, the guy who uh, the developer who uh, who was building the building uh, uh, on Hastings, which is now uh, almost complete. He actually did th- had that taken off uh, carefully and is actually going to reinstall it as a feature in the building. So, oh. so, so you can do it, right? Just it just requires um, somebody caring. I think people do care. We just need to bring it to our attention. I'm going to go look for these now. John, thank you so much for telling us about that today. Well, thank you. It was it was great to wake up this early. <laughs> I sent sarcasm on that one, John. That's John Mackey, reporter for the Vancouver Sun, teaching us all about ghost signs as part of our Where We Live series. This is Mornings with Simi. You were not imagining things. Today is not Friday. Today is Thursday. But yes, we are speaking with Vanny Sartini, head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps, because tomorrow is a big day. We're going to be marking truth and reconciliation here on the show. So we have a lot of special programming for you. And it turns out the Vancouver Whitecaps are very busy, too. They will also be marking Orange Shirt Day. Good morning, coach. Good morning, team. How are you? I am good. Thank you. How's the team today? Like, I know you just played, right? You played yesterday. Yeah, we played yesterday night. We tied in Denver and we just flew back right after the game. And uh, yeah, today is going to be a very quick turnaround because Saturday there's uh, another very important game against uh, DC. After seven games that we played on the road, we're coming back. The last uh, four games, three will be at BC Play. So uh, we're in a good position. We are uh, inside the playoff line now. So Everything is uh, is in our hands, and in the I would say in the hands of the hearts of our fans that uh, they should come and uh, uh, mass uh, to BC Place to support us from from Sunday on. I will tell you, Coach. We gave away a lot of tickets here on my show oh. for that game, so there's gonna be a lot of mornings with Simi fans there. They're gonna cheer yeah. really loudly for you. <laughs> <laughs> is it hard though, like for the team, because they just as you said just played last night, play again on the weekend? That is a very quick turnaround. Yes, 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 it is, it is. It's very hard and, you know, we played a lot of games lately and all on the road, so you have to add travel on top of that. And, 
you could see yesterday that uh, we probably were the best team on the field we could have won, but uh, we were extremely tired at the end, and uh, the team was a little bit disconnected, and it was more a, more a matter of uh, heart and uh, and will than uh, I would say X's and O's on the field and skills. So I'm very proud of the of the team on how they did in this uh, extended road trip, and uh, now it's time to. I would say, to gather the fruit of the work that we've done away, winning some games home. Okay, so when you say being at home will be the extra push that they need? I think so. I think so for a million factors. As I said before, we are not traveling, and uh, we have a very good record home, and our fans are always, I would say, it's easy to, again, when you have a schedule that tight, it's easier. Not easy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's easier if you have your fan behind you to push in the moment where it seems that uh, you don't have any energy anymore and it's going to be harder. Right. But, of course, Saturday you're playing. Saturday is also an important day, Truth and Reconciliation Day. I understand the players are going to be wearing orange shirts. Yes. Uh, as every year, we uh, we are happy to, to celebrate Truth and uh, Reconciliation Day, so the player will wear orange shirt in uh, during the warm up. Uh, the staff will wear orange shirt on the bench during the game, and we actually invite all the all the fans uh, if they want to wear uh, something orange on the on the, on the stand uh, during the game because uh, we they come to support us, but also to celebrate a very important day in order to I would say we are part of the community as Vancouver Whitecaps and everything that we can do in order to make the place that we live a little bo- a little better, a little fairer, uh, why not? I think that's a great idea. I'm glad to hear the team supports it. Coach, thank you so much. Listen, good luck on Saturday. Thank you so much. Bye. That, that is Vanny Sartini, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Yes, they're saying players are going to be wearing orange shirts on Saturday for the game against D.C. United, and they want all of the people coming to the game to do the same to help celebrate and mark truth and reconciliation at the game. This is Mornings with Simi. BC has been making a big push in Ottawa this past week. There were several cabinet ministers meeting with different ministers in the Liberal government on a number of different topics. But one of the big ones, and something that Premier David Eby has been talking about for a long time, is bail reform. And there was some progress that has been made on this, but will it be enough? Now, for more on this and BC's justice system, we are joined now by Nikki Sharma, the Attorney General of British Columbia. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. So first off, how did it go in Ottawa? Are you hopeful on the bail reform issue? Um, I am hopeful. Uh, The House of Commons passed it unanimously, which is a big step forward. And my job there was to make sure that it gets through the Senate, which is our next step. So I met with senators that are on the Justice Committee that are now contemplating the bill. Our hope is that we'll move very quickly um, in in a matter of a couple of weeks or a month. And that was our kind of ask of Ottawa. It's a pressing issue in British Columbia, public safety, and people want to to ensure that uh, repeat violent offenders are kept off the streets um, if they've been shown to show repeated weapon use or assault or violence on the streets. So um, I am hopeful the conversations went well. Um, but I will be continuing to press and keep in touch with my Ottawa colleagues to make sure it moves quickly. Right, because there were some concerns voiced, I thought, by some of the senators who they, oh, they had some questions. And I thought, is this going to get held up again? Yeah, and I was there to really answer those questions directly. And those are the ones that I exactly met with, the ones that I was hearing concerns about it. I think 
you know, some of them are just concerned that we strike the right balance in terms of making sure that, you know, racialized people and the, the negative impacts of the justice system um, that are kind of the wrong side of the, the line are not um, you know, are not enhanced by any changes. So we're making sure that we're taking the right kind of action. And I told them um, our approach in BC was to say, look, if you are a repeat violent offender, if you've caused harm repeatedly to community, then what should happen is the is it, the, the law should shift to say, give us a reason why you should be released and why you're not a threat to public safety rather than and, uh, releasing them until their trial date. So that, that was the kind of balance that we think the justice system needs to strike when it comes to protecting the right of to be innocent and to proven guilty, but also public safety. Okay, so uh, did, were they were they amenable to that? Did they think, okay, that addresses our concerns? Um, well, I, it was a, there were positive conversations, uh, and I know that they're going to be listening to a lot of people once the committee uh, sits, I think, next week, and I'll, I'll have a chance to give further submissions during that process. So, you know, I, I was able to tell them why BC's approach we think is the right one and why we led the way in the country with advocating for these changes, and, and that actually it's provinces across the country that agree with us on this. So I hope that that will tip the balance for them to realize that this is a very good public policy change. Right. That's not the only issue I think facing our justice system here in BC, though. Uh, I wanted to talk as well about this report about the BC Sheriff's Service. It, it said that there were, you know, lots of issues in the Sheriff's Service, including bullying, sexual harassment, low pay, leading to a recruitment and retention crisis, meaning that some, you know, trial dates and things get canceled as a result of this? Like, what's being done about that? Yeah, it's a very serious issue. And my job is to make sure that the justice system is running well. And it's the reason that we issued this report and did a really in-depth study to see what was happening with sheriffs. We They're so important to our justice system and the safety of our core process. And we were seeing them um, leave. And so this report really gave us very, very clear ideas of what we need to change. And we've already started taking action on those changes. One of them was salary. Uh, One of them was uh, recruitment and retention bonuses, figuring out how to make it a better uh, workplace for sheriffs. We released uh, a whole plan that the sheriffs know and hear about, so they know that we are taking those issues seriously. Some of it looks like it's paying off. We're we're recruiting um, the most sheriffs that we have um, in in years in the next, next training effort. One of the challenges we're facing is that our sheriffs are very well trained, and so they're great recruitment grounds for police forces. Ah. And um, all all of that, um, you know, peace officer services are in need of more bodies. So sheriffs tend to be recruited um, from that. And we get it. They're very well trained, but we think we can offer a good um, a good place for them in our court services. And it's a very important and respected job. So our my job is to make sure they hear that they're they're uh, supported and that we're making the changes necessary for them to stay and are for our justice system to work well. Okay, so you feel more sheriffs are being recruited, though? Like, are those numbers going up? Yeah, we went from um, only, I think, 200 uh, uh, applicants in the last two rounds to the to the most recent one being up to 624 applicants. So I'm hopeful that's a positive sign that they're hearing that we're serious about our commitment to making, um, to listening to them and making it, a, 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 you know, a better place to work. So, um, but we'll keep at it. We have a whole bunch of uh, of we have a big comprehensive plan of what we're doing to tackle that because we know British Columbians, when they need to access a courtroom, they need to do it safely. They need it to, in a timely way. So yeah, that's part of the work that we're doing. Well, what about the bullying part of it and the sexual harassment? How do you tackle that? 
Yeah, clearly, you. I, in my view, if you take that that very seriously, you have to understand how to make it a better work culture for those people that are experiencing those things. And um, although individual cases are handled in individual HR, and you know, we can't talk about it, we 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 are taking all those actions very seriously, or all those concerns very seriously. You know, I have to ask you as well. Like coming up in ten minutes, um, we have a couple of people that you work with on the show. We have Eleanor Sturko coming on the show, uh, and we have Selena Robinson to talk about some of the challenges that they have faced being in politics and kind of the threats and that. Have you experienced that too? Has it been challenging? Yeah, I think probably everybody that's in um, in public office has a, a story of, of challenges they've faced or when they feel they felt. Um, harassed online or in person. But I think um, I think it's definitely something that I'm hearing more and more from people. And, you know, I, I've been thinking about it just in my role as attorney general, what we can do to better support people in this. And it, it is troubling when you hear that. And yeah. And they had trouble it. getting their case, you know, through the system, like to get the police to pay attention. So are there changes that BC can make to help with this? Yeah, we're certainly looking into that. I I really do believe that um, government systems across the world have to keep up with the way that online harms have, you know, changed and impacted people in their in their systems. And it's why we introduced the Intimate Images Protection Act to help people fight back against that against that type of bullying that happens online, where somebody takes your image and alters it and spreads it to harass you or to threaten you. Um, And we've put into place new tools for that. But we're certainly thinking about you know, what are the ways that um, the online space uh, and the harassment and bullying that can happen on there, what, what are the ways that justice system needs to step up in that regard? And, and I do think there's space there. So with all of these changes that we talked about this morning, do you can British Columbians hope that maybe we'll start to see the effects of that, in, you know, in the next little while? Um, well, my commitment to British Columbians is to keep at it until the things do change. And I'm hopeful with the way things are changing right now. And we're seeing that more sheriffs are wanting to join the service. And we'll keep making those changes until it's better. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. No problem. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. That's Nikki Sharma, the Attorney General of BC. A couple of big topics. One, bail reform. Uh, they were in Ottawa. A couple of cabinet ministers were in Ottawa this week to push for that. Now, that was something that they've tried hard to get that message through to the federal liberal government. They did. So the House of Commons passed it uh, unanimously, went to the Senate. And then it was like the, some of the senators said, oh, no, we want to think about this. We have some questions. And as you heard the attorney general say there, she was there to answer those questions and hopefully they'll get pushed through. This is a package that BC has really been hoping to see for quite a while now in the hopes that it will make a difference in keeping repeat prolific offenders behind bars. And we are still waiting for more on that. This is Mornings with Simi. I was thinking about something that Vaughn Palmer had told us about earlier, how something as simple as, you know, BC ferries doing public consultation had to be moved online because someone made threats, physical threats against the BC ferries employees. I mean, that's kind of where we are at these days, which is so sad. So is it any wonder that people are reluctant to put themselves out there for things like public service? And that's what political office is, right? It's public service. It's not all about ideologies and taking sides. 
And a great example of that actually is our next story. Now, Rob Shaw brought it to our attention last week, but we wanted to talk more about it. Uh, One of those instances where people reach across the aisle to solve a problem. So joining us now is Selena Robinson, Minister of Post-Secondary and Future Skills for the NDP. And also joining us, Eleanor Sturko, Shadow Minister for Mental Health and Addictions and Recovery for BC United. Two parties, but they were on a mission together recently. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So nice and to good get. Good morning, Selena. <laughs> good morning, y'all. You know, people like to hear about this kind of stuff, which is why we really wanted to have both of you on to talk about it. Uh, Selena, I'm going to start with you. You were getting some some disturbing threats at your constituency office. Is that right? Yeah, I was getting I was getting emails that had in the subject line, "I will kill you, Selena Robinson," in all caps. Very alarming. Um, and then they it escalated after a few weeks. Uh, with a, a, a very vulgar description about how they would kill me, um, and uh, certainly alarmed, uh, and reached out to our protocols at the time, which were a little, I would say, on the thin side. They've since been beefed up and uh, supported, and I want to thank Al for helping to move that forward. Um, and recently, this person was um, was contacted, uh, and uh, we finally received photographs so that we feel a little bit safer um, knowing who this this person is. Okay. Okay, but first off, let me ask you, how common is it to get threats like that? Um, Well, I mean, it's becoming more common, unfortunately. I think people feel like it's uh, permissible to uh, viciously uh, and verbally assault, uh, because it is an assault to send emails like that. Um, We certainly see it happen to Christopher Freeland um, and to others um, who put themselves forward for public service. It's becoming more frequent, unfortunately. So, Eleanor, were you also getting similar (laughs) threats like that? I actually didn't receive my threat from the same person like that until it, I think Selena unfortunately had received threats for a couple of months before that, which is why actually when I received a threat for the first time, and then I think they just, I it wasn't intentionally told necessarily that it was uh, Selena also receiving it, but one of the people sort of let it slip that Selena and maybe another MLA female was also getting um contacted and threatened and so I just took it upon myself to contact Selena and find out more information knowing I mean from my policing background I wanted these files put together um, because you know it adds strength to um, the investigation and and because of the nature of um, what was said to me and also what I found out was said to Selena it was very similar coming from the same email addresses there was a lot of evidence to suggest the same person and I just was like you know what just blocking these emails isn't enough Um, And frankly, it really ticked me off to know that someone had been allowed to continue for weeks and weeks to utter these type of threats, which is a crime. Uttering threats is illegal um, to hear uh, that that had happened. And this person basically was continuing with impunity really ticked me off. (laughs) And so I wanted to reach out to Selena and do whatever I could to make sure that we um, identified and that this person was brought to justice. Right. But see, you touch on an important point there is that you knew how to bring this to the attention of authorities, but with the right language and in the right way to make it suddenly somebody would pay attention to it. Like it changed, Eleanor, when you got involved. Well, part of it, I think, too, is making sure that those in the legislature. And I have to say that, you know, um, overall, I'm pleased with 
the way that they've responded once we sort of talked about our concerns and, and why it's important for us to not just block these emails, but also to pursue individuals who are committing this crime, because it's actually a I mean, this sounds like overly dramatic, but it is a threat to our democracy when we have people that feel that they can't participate in our democratic process and they don't want to become candidates because they feel they'll be intimidated or threatened. And so this is like of the utmost importance that especially in the work that Selena and I are doing that people feel like they have that safety. So you're right. I did have experience like investigating actually these type of cases myself, but I know that they're also incredibly complex because they involved um, having to get production orders and having to get warrants to obtain information, and it takes time. Right, but, but it's doable. I, I That's was, the thing. It is, it is doable. doable. And so, Selena, Absolutely. I want to ask you, was it frustrating? Like, you've probably gotten threats or people being nasty in the past, and has there felt like in the past perhaps it was like, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, that's exactly right to me. I think part of the problem that we have is we think, we think that these um, are harmless. But they, over time, they add up. So I was really concerned, and all I have talked about this, like our staff are the ones who are receiving them. I mean, they're, they're geared to me, but I have people who, you know, respond for, to emails um, during the day and identify ones that I need to respond to, and we work together as a team. So they were getting this barrage, and sometimes it was a dozen or 15 a day that would come in, and it was in the subject line. And every time that happens, you get a shot of adrenaline, and my staff are being traumatized. And the way I characterize it, you can imagine if someone was banging on my window of my community office incessantly, incessantly, I promise you the police would be there to move that person away and to deal with it. This is no different. They were literally banging on my email window incessantly. And my staff had no tools to deal with it. They couldn't find this person. Uh, and it becomes um, really challenging. And even though the email got blocked, this person would change their email address and circumvent the blocking. So it was, it was just really continual. It would stop for two weeks, and then it would start up again. Um, and so we need to take these things seriously, and it does have impact on people. It is very traumatizing to receive threats like that. Oh, listen, I can sympathize because that we are no stranger to that uh, yeah. in, in this line of work as well. And so that's happened. So, uh, Selena, I'm going to ask both of you this question, but I'll start with you. Are you confident that if this were to happen again to another person in your position in another constituency office, that it would be dealt with differently, though, because of all the attention this case has gotten? First of all, absolutely. And I think, again, our protective services and legislative protective services, I think, have learned. I mean, L was really great at helping with the, R with the RCMP and moving that forward. Um, and I was able to reach out to our legislative protective services to say, OK, this isn't good enough and really push them and work with them to find a system that worked better because it really felt like there wasn't a, a great protocol. So we have better protocols in place. Um, I've already just had a chat with the, um, the Attorney General, with Nikki Sharma, yesterday about this, around we need to have a conversation. Um, and I'm hoping that we can gather, and I do believe it's women that get targeted, certainly way more than men. Um, and I do hope that the women in the legislature will have a time, we're going to be going to the legislature next week, uh, that we can gather together to find out what more we need to do. I've been talking to certainly my colleagues um, on our side of the house around, and I'm learning that others too have experienced this. And so we need to, I think, have better protocols and better conversations about what we are going to do to protect democracy. As, as Al said, um, you know, you put yourself forward, you put yourself out there in public, uh, you want to serve the public. This is public service. Um, but when you have members of the public uh, assault you with threats 
um, it becomes uh, very unnerving, and we need to protect our democracy, and this is a way that uh, I think all sides of the House can work together to do that. Eleanor, do you think this has changed things? Will it be dealt with differently now? I think so. And I think just coming forward with Selena and talking about our experience and knowing that it's nonpartisan and that we all support each other and want to help one another um, is an important part of it. And, you know, I, I think that all of us can agree, like, you know, we we're we may be opposition, but we're not enemies. We are colleagues within the chamber. Um, We both of us have jobs to do. The people who uh, elected Selena have chosen her as their representative and she has every right to continue serving them and to feel comfortable in her community. And so do I, you know, and, and I think that sort of understanding of the mutual respect that Selena Robinson and Eleanor Sturgo are here by the wishes of their community and doing a job that is important. And so we need to make sure that we do stand up and and talk about protecting people and be clear, this isn't about writing me and telling me that you don't like my stand on drug policies or telling me, you know, you just don't like how I talk or something. This is, these were criminal threats that actually did even for myself. uh, They impacted me psychologically and caused me to feel uh, significant fear based on what was said to me and said to my staff members. So, um, these things need to have consequences. And I think as a result of working together with Selena, we're going to see um, things change. Right. But that's a good point that you make there, Eleanor. And that is, you sure, go ahead. Criticism is one thing. You can have a discussion, but there is a line that shouldn't be crossed. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, you know, and it's, it's a clear line. Sorry. And it's a clear and it's a clear line. Yeah. yeah. Eleanor, any advice for people then if they do feel like we need to talk to police about this? Like, how do you get the police to make sure they take it seriously? Well, I do think that police do take things seriously, but we also have to keep in mind that these can be incredibly complex um, investigations that take time. I know that people have in the past been told there's nothing that we can do. And in certain exactly. circumstances, certain circumstances, it is very difficult to do anything depending on there's a lot of technology out there that can do things like block emails can spoof numbers, can spoof emails. And these actually are tremendous barriers to investigation. Um, But I think when there is a pathway, when there is an ability for police to find and identify those people, it's important um, that they be held to account. Well, listen, thanks to both of you for being here. It was so important and a really great conversation. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And good luck. That is Selena Robinson with the NDP, of course, MLA, Eleanor Sturko, BC United MLA, but they are united on this topic of fighting back against harassment and violent threats, which they both recently faced.